the pandemic is over. At least that's what President Joe Biden says. We'll discuss the status of the COVID-19 pandemic plus another pandemic and how doctors who previously pleaded guilty to overprescribing opioids are relying on the Supreme Court to stay out of jail. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. everyone and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net and with us as he has been previously is the President and CEO of Fulker Strategies and Economist by Trade, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to. This week we're going to be discussing COVID-19, polio, and opioids in the Supreme Court. Plus, if you stick around to the end for my final thought, I'll tell you about a new TikTok trend about cooking chicken in NyQuil and why we don't recommend doing that. You know, I, I mentioned at the end, Ron, that, that, you know, the Internet was supposed to solve the vacuum of information that supposedly was making people stupid. And I unfortunately think it's had the opposite effect. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, you know, what what was, again, supposed to be this wonderful um, information sharing thing has Definitely has some negative side effects to it, that's for sure. Well, we'll get to that at the end. Right now, we'll talk. To, we'll turn now to uh, President Joe Biden and the COVID-19 pandemic and where we are with COVID-19 in the country. And the reason I'm bringing this up today in particular is uh, President Biden was on 60 Minutes this past Sunday in which he said uh, this uh, when asked by Scott Pelley at the Detroit Auto Show. Mr. President, first Detroit Auto Show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Ron, what do you think? Is the pandemic over? Well, like all things, I think it, it probably gets into what is your definition of over. I think there are mm -hmm. definitely things about the pandemic that are over. You know, we are over the the most dangerous part of the pandemic when, A, the virus was much more severe. We didn't have effective treatments and we didn't have a vaccine. Now, none of those three things are true. The virus is much less severe. We have effective treatments and we have effective vaccines. So that part of it's over. I don't think it's true to say that it's completely over because we're going to be dealing with some of the effects of COVID-19 for, for years to come. So if your definition is the scary part where it was really, really dangerous, sure. If your definition is, do I need to even stop thinking about COVID-19 because it's no longer impacting us at all? No, no, it's not over. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, and I'm glad you did, because last week we talked about the effects of long COVID and how that's going to possibly harm the labor force, especially if it gets classified as a, as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And if you want to know more about that, check out our episode from last week. Um, you wrote earlier this year on flatlining.net about uh, COVID-19, and you titled the article The End of the Beginning. Um, are we still in that end of the beginning or have we kind of reached the middle of the beginning at this point? 
Yeah, and the, and the, the, the comment came from it's a, and I might not get it perfectly correct, but it's an old Winston Churchill quote from mm-hmm. at the end of the Battle of Britain, the Air War, and he said, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. Um, I think we're past the end of the beginning. You know, we maybe okay. are in the beginning of the end um, to sort of use that same. So again, we continue to make progress. Part of that is just the natural evolution of the virus, um, but it's not over. We still have a number of things to deal with, including um, the scary thought of, well, what about the next one? You know, we, we, we got through this one um, and we got through it relatively well, given what it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know there, there are folks like Bill Gates, for example, who is still saying, hey, just because this one didn't completely destroy us and just because this only killed a million U.S. citizens, it could have been much worse. We need to better prepare for what the next one, the next novel virus might look like. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's another thing that we're not through yet, you know, is we, we can't forget about COVID because we don't know what the next one is. As we move on from COVID and as we continue to, to, you know, have it with us as an endemic disease like influenza, what, what does this mean for the country? Um, what does it mean for healthcare policy in particular? Well, it, you know, COVID introduced an entirely new dynamic. And I think, you know, healthcare providers and healthcare policy um, have hopefully learned from that. Um, and how did we deal with this well? How did we not deal with it well? How do we need to address policy going forward um, to potentially deal with whatever the next one is? And those are huge open questions. We don't have them answered yet. If anything, we're just still figuring out what the question is. As Biden's talking about the pandemic being over, um, last week, the World Health Organization Director General Tedros uh, Gabrizius said that the um, that we've never been in a better position to end the pandemic, but we're not there yet. Uh, but he did say that the end is in sight. I, I do know policy wise, and this is why I think it's interesting that Biden said this, and, and I want to talk about the political ramifications of this in a second. Because Biden is saying the pandemic is over. Um, the HHS just missed their uh, 60-day window to notify the states that they were going to end the public health emergency. W- when do you think we're going to see an end to the public health emergency? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And I think it, it really depends on whether the end of the public health emergency is going to be decided largely politically or clinically. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's it's obvious. If it's politically, it's going to end before the midterms um, because politically that's the right time to do it. Um, if it's purely clinically, and I'm not saying purely clinically is correct because sometimes whenever you're looking at a problem through only one lens, you tend to forget the other things. For example, you know, purely clinically, when we first got wrapped up in COVID, we should have completely shut down everyone made everyone stay at home we should have forced needles in arms when with a vaccine whether they wanted to or not clinically that would have been the right thing to do now i wouldn't have agreed with that that dramatic of an approach because it it doesn't consider other things like what happens to the economy mm-hmm. like all the discussion about what happens to kids who aren't in school systems like all of those other things so if, if it's Purely clinically, I think we're going to see this, you know, extend for quite some time. Um, so when it ends, it's largely going to be which end of that spectrum has more sway. And, and reality, 
the, probably the sweet spot is somewhere with a little of both. Um, mm -hmm. But it yet remains to be seen how that how that final decision is going to be made. Do you think that when the when do you think these shift from government underwriting of COVID nineteen vaccines and treatment and testing? Do you think that will end um, when the either the Biden administration or I mean perhaps even the next administration, depending on how long it lasts, when they uh, declare the end of the public health emergency? Yeah, I think that'll be part of, you know, when they declare the end, there'll be a number of things that'll happen that, you know, uh, they'll stop funding the treatment, et cetera. And, and they probably should. That that mm -hmm. can be funded by private insurers or, or Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, um, as well as a number of other things. You know, the, some of the continued requirements for mask mandates and healthcare delivery and mm -hmm. other things will also end when the, you know, when the uh, when the date hits. How do you think that'll affect cost-wise? How do you think that'll affect, uh, in particular, physicians and, and their practices? The shift to uh, commercial coverage of COVID nineteen as opposed to med or as opposed to government underwriting. Well, I, I really think from a physician practice perspective, it'll have very little impact. Um, most of the what's now the heavy cost, and even in the beginning, the heavy cost of treating COVID really sits in hospital facilities, mm -hmm. um, and they're just going to get you know they'll get. Uh, their payment rather than direct from the government for those things. They'll get it from insurance companies or the government through Medicare, Medicaid. So I don't think it's a problem for, you know, it's not going to ruin healthcare delivery, any of that. It just will move that money from one to another. Mm -hmm. And, and now that COVID is nowhere near as severe, um, right. that shift is nowhere near what it would have been in the beginning when, you know, things were very, very dire. The Mayo Clinic uh, just put out some um, forecasting on, uh, on co what we can expect for COVID-19 over the next few weeks. But before I get to that, um, in the 60 Minutes interview, President Biden did what I think he's done in pretty much every interview or speech that he's given. And he's gone back and blamed the slow vaccination, or he refers to as a slow vaccination, on uh, the former administration. And I want to go ahead and play that clip real quick. Your approval rating in the country is well below 50%. And I wonder why you think that is. This is a really difficult time. We're at an inflection point in the history of this country. We're going to make decisions and we're making decisions now that are going to determine what we're going to look like in the next 10 years from now. I think you'd agree that the impact on the psyche of the American people as a consequence of the pandemic is profound. Think of how that has changed everything. You know, people's attitudes about themselves, their families, about the state of the nation, about the state of their communities. And so there's a lot of uncertainty out there, a great deal of uncertainty. And we lost a million people, a million people to COVID. When I got in office, when I got elected, only 2 million people were vaccinated. I got 220 million. My point is it takes time. We were left in a very difficult situation. It's been a very difficult time. Very difficult. It's true his his approval ratings are low. Um, and I think his his argument here in, in this answer that he gave to Scott Pelley was just that, you know, you got to wait and see what we're going to accomplish by the things we put in place now. But do you think that is it fair to turn around and, and blame the previous administration, despite the fact the vaccines were only approved a month before Biden was in office? Um, no, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to, to blame the previous administration, um, you know, for the 
to some degree for the slow uptake in the vaccination. I mean, there, there's a lot of data that shows that um, even today, you know, there's a very different vaccination rate between Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily lay that at the feet solely of the previous administration. We've been headed down this path towards um, division between left and right, DNR, blue and red, for, you know, before the Trump administration. Um, right. and, and, you know, we're, we're at a point now in a country where if, if the other side wants it, it must be inherently bad. And I'm not even going to consider whether it's, um, whether the merits of it uh, are purely going to be opposed to it. I mean, I almost feel like, you know, it, it could get to, it gets to almost a silly scenario that mm -hmm. it's something clearly it was beneficial for you. If it comes from the other side, well, it must be evil. And I can't do it anymore. So, so I don't think it's necessarily fair to blame them for that completely. I think it was happening. I do think there's a political component to how slow we had an uptick on the vaccine, right. how low we are right now compared to other countries, especially with how readily available it is here, especially compared mm -hmm. to other countries. Um, I don't know, and, I, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I, I often wonder, wouldn't it be nice if we ever got, you know, a truly, um, you know, blatantly honest politician? Um, and I don't know what we do know what to do. There's a there's a very, I forget the name of the movie. There's a very old movie, and Dudley Moore uh, is in like a, a mental institution, and and all the people inside the institution end up becoming, you know, wonderful marketing like like madison avenue adwids mm -hmm. because they were just honest and I, I remember like one of them is they were talking about uh, an ad tagline for volvo and they say you know sure it's boxy and ugly but at least it's safe um <laughs> and they just didn't varnish anything and I, you know i mean i wonder what, what what would happen if you know if if in that answer to that question Biden said you know i you know i I didn't really do very well in the first year or so. I kind of get my feet on me and, or, or answered, well, yeah, my approval rating's low. Everybody in DC has a low approval rating. Right. Do you blame them? <laughs> we're dysfunctional, which yeah. would be an honest answer, but I don't think we're ever going to get that. But it, you know, if I were asked, why is Biden's approval rating below 50%? Because he's in DC. Find me anyone mm -hmm. in DC right now, a senator, a representative, a, a, you know, a president, a vice president. I don't care who they are. Find me anybody with an approval rate of greater than 50%, and I will give you every bit of money I have because it doesn't exist. And it's not without good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a plague <laughs> on both your houses at yeah. this point, you know, you know, so, anyways, I, there's a clip of uh, the late night comedian Craig Ferguson on YouTube mm -hmm. somewhere. And uh, it's during the it must have been during the 2012 election, because I think he was making a joke about Mitt Romney. But the overall joke that he was pointing out was that in the polling data for that particular week in the, the presidential election, all of the Republican candidates were polling lower against Obama than generic Republican candidates on the, right. the ballot. And I, of course, that, you know, we could probably see that now that I'm sure generic Democrat versus generic Republican mm -hmm. would get a whole lot more support than, you know, Biden right. and Trump or Hillary or Ron DeSantis or whoever might be running for president coming up in, uh, in 2020, mm -hmm. uh, 2024. Yeah. Uh, Biden didn't announce whether or not he was going to do that last night. He said he intends to, but uh, he didn't uh, say he wanted to put that in stone yet. So we'll see. We'll see mm -hmm. what happens. Uh, staying with COVID, the Mayo Clinic has done some um, math wizardry and has come up with some forecasting for the COVID-19 numbers uh, over the next couple weeks. R right now, we're seeing fewer than 70,000 new cases a day. Um, that's the lowest level since early May. And apparently 35,000 people are, are in a hospitals right now with uh, COVID-19. And the average daily deaths is at 
uh, was at 464 at the time of Biden's interview on Sunday night. Mm -hmm. Mayo Clinic is projecting a decrease in new daily cases of about 16.1%. We've seen now, Ron, cases go up and down, um, you know, as various waves have come in, as different seasons have come in, as, you know, mask mandates were lifted, as we've had more people vaccinated. How much of an up and down do you think we're going to see as we go into the winter this year? Um, and and how do you think that'll affect policy going into the next uh, congressional cycle? Well, uh, first of all, I don't look at case counts anymore because I think it's an irrelevant number. Sure. And okay. I think the number is invalid um, because so many people are testing at home and because so much of this doesn't require you know, such advanced medical care that it would force a PCR test that is trackable. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have any idea how many new cases there are. Okay. Okay. For yeah. example, um, you know, last Easter, my family and I, my kids brought it home from school. Thank you, kids. And, and everybody in my family, but my wife got COVID. It was very mild. We're all vaccinated. We didn't have to seek other medical care. Um, we did home testing. Our COVID positive test never got any of the statistics because who knew other than us? Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We self-isolated. We did all, So I think the numbers now, because of the home testing and they don't have to go to the hospital, are, are somewhat invalid. I think that the case count is much higher than what they're reporting it to be. Some of it they're doing extrapolation on COVID and wastewater, which is a mm -hmm. difficult mathematical extrapolation with a high degree of uncertainty. Secondly, why I don't look at cases is I don't care, you know, um, and I don't, it's not that I don't care about COVID. It's that, well, the whole thing in the beginning shouldn't have been how many people get COVID. It's how many people have a very serious reaction to it. Mm. That's why nobody freaks out and says, you know what, last week, 100,000 Americans got the common cold. Well, right. Okay. You know, so what? So they, they went to the pharmacy, they got themselves some over the counter stuff and they had a bad weekend. Um, so since it's nowhere near as severe and, and much more effectively treated, to me, the numbers are watching hospitalizations and deaths, and those have gotten down to a relatively stable and relatively low level compared to where they were. Now, that's not to say that I'm not sympathetic to the people who are still dying of COVID, but it's not nearly what it was. So, mm -hmm. you know, the people who still focus on case counts or that stuff. I'm like, well, who cares? You know, the point was to have people not end up in the hospital and not die from this. The day that COVID fully evolves into something like the common cold, we can forget about looking at any of it, you know? And, and you know, I'm actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you corrected me there as, as why we shouldn't look at that statistic. Cause I will say I've noticed even in, in our, back when COVID got started, it used to be a daily thing you would see on, on your local news, you know, new cases in your area and now that i think about it i'm not sure i've seen anything come from the michigan department of health i think they're they're either at bi-weekly or monthly reporting now at yeah. this point um, mm -hmm. i'm sure north carolina is the same way well and and even like let's put it this way um the current you know average daily fatality count okay is only about twice as high and i know that sounds strange when you say only about mm -hmm. twice as high as a bad flu season. You know, we've had years where the flu season, we've lost 60,000 people. And that's horrible. But for COVID, 
no one even knew that number or talked about it. We knew that some people died from the flu, but 60,000 people out of 330 million, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible, but we could never completely get rid of it. We try to do what we can with a flu shot. It's not like people freaked out. We're, we're down to where we're starting to get into that range with COVID. And that's why I say, you know, relatively low and relatively stable, um, where we probably don't need to worry about it as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you're one of those people that are at serious risk, you're the extreme elderly or immunocompromised or have some of those things, COVID is still something you don't want to mess around with. Right. But it's not like it was before where we were, oh, my God, this might get away from us, and we don't know how many millions of people it'll kill. So, so let's turn then to, to hospitalizations, because that seems to be the, yeah. the statistic that you're more interested in. Uh, the, the CDC's ensemble forecast, which looks at 15 different modeling groups right now, they're predicting mm-hmm. um, that the cases, they have two options of what's going to happen. Uh, cases are either going to remain stable for hospitalizations, or they said they have an uncertain trend. When we talk in mm-hmm. statistics about an uncertain trend, what, is, what does that usually mean? Well, an uncertain trend usually means that based on the modeling that we're doing, um, it doesn't give us any sort of predictability, clarity on what the future looks like. Okay. Um, Either because the correlations are not strong enough for me to make an assertion, um, or we're concerned that the correlations are true, true, and unrelated, Mm -hmm. or we think there could be a significant change in one of the variables that we haven't, or we haven't sort of uh, have enough data to determine what that is. So it's, it's basically the data doesn't support any conclusions at this time. It doesn't mean that we don't have a potential projection. It means we're not confident enough to, to, you know, sort of put it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nation's seven day average of new hospital admissions is about um, 4,101. Uh, that is down from uh, last week, according to the CDC data. So that's I, I, that's a good sign as we go forward. So as we look at, um, you know, as I remember last year, you had a couple of uh, uh, news outlets pointing out, well, winter is coming and we're going to have a winter wave. Do you think we're going to see a, a winter wave and hospitalization spike uh, as we go into the winter months? Um, uh, you know, I think we should expect like we do with almost anything, we do it with the flu, we do it with other things, that there's going to be, there's seasonality to to um, hospitalizations. And I think we should expect some of that seasonality with COVID. Mm-hmm. Not, not because winter is a better breeding ground for COVID or we're going to see higher infection rates. It inherently creates problems with respiratory and other systems that COVID plays on. So same reason why we, we you know, we have this winter seasonality in a number of things. Um, especially respiratory issues. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we'll see a little bit of, I don't think it'll be some sort of a massive spike. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's, that's partly why it's hard for them to say this is going to completely go away or trend down even more, why they, you know, some people think we're, you know, we're at stability, if you will, that, that these numbers aren't going to go down a whole lot further until the virus evolves even to something less severe is you know we still have roughly one third of the population not fully vaccinated mm-hmm. and the statistics on hospitalization are very dramatic that the difference between you know hospitalization of the vaccinated or, you know not fully vaccinated and the fully vaccinated are dramatic and so 
you know, as long as one third of the population isn't vaccinated, we are going to continue to see a fairly high tick of of um, hospitalizations, meaning, you know, twice what the flu is. Um, and the only way to get that down is to have a significant improvement in the vaccination rate, which has not moved up significantly in quite a while, mm -hmm. you know. So that's the other reason why we'll probably never and until the virus finishes evolving, we'll never see that get down to that only 50,000 fatalities or only 10,000 fatalities because there's still just such a significant part of the population that is at extreme risk. And that one-third of unvaccinated uh, peoples, that's that's been, you said it's a while. I believe it's been almost all of this of 2022, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to say... Uh, end of December, Jan 1, we were at like, and I'm talking about fully vaccinated. We mm -hmm. were about 63% yep. of the population. We're at 68% of the population now. So, I mean, that's in a, in, a, in this year, that's not much of an uptick. Right. Um, and again, this gets back to my previous point about, you know, we, we are the country with the most readily available vaccines. It's free. You can get right. it damn near anywhere. Um, and we're at 68% fully vaccinated the worldwide. They're at 63. Well, mm -hmm. that's not a very, that's not a very good lead that we've got on the rest of the world when we have all the advantages that we have. Mm -hmm. And that's even after, uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was suspended for a little yeah. while. Um, and mm -hmm. I, the first thing I'm seeing here from the Huffington Post says it was brought back in, in April. I kind of, that kind yeah. of fell off my radar after it happened. And I'm surprised I didn't check back in on that, but it's almost weird to think about that. We had an entire vaccine lopped off yeah. the table and, right. um, and we still haven't, it didn't really make a dent in nope. anything. I mean, nope. but nope. that, that was one that I know I think had more people concerned. I don't know if that was ever reapproved in Europe or not, uh, but I do know it was here in the U.S. And I did hear just the other day, um, as China has tried to export its coronavirus vaccine, which is nowhere near as effective as the ones that we've developed in the West, and same with uh, Russia's Sputnik vaccine, um, yeah. they, they've been trying to get some of their influence into to Southeast Asia and to Africa with these vaccines, but they're just not as effective as what we've developed in Western Europe and the United States. Right. Right. Absolutely. I want to turn now to a different virus, uh, a different quote unquote pandemic, uh, and that's polio. And we thought it was gone in the U.S. for quite a long time, but there's been some cases reported. What's the deal with that? Yeah. Well, what we're seeing is um, the byproduct of this division in this country um, and, and what can happen by that division. So part of what happened with, you know, the COVID vaccine is a lot of distrust in a lot of things, okay, but including vaccines in general. Mm -hmm. And so we've started to see an uptick of vaccination rates across the board. You know, some of the, the things that, you know, we had taken for granted in society, polio being a perfect example of, well, we've got that one whipped. We've got a safe, effective vaccine that's been being used forever you know, with scads of clinical data that says it's safe and effective. And suddenly, because it's labeled a vaccine and because vaccines are inherently, we should be skeptical about them, um, not everybody's doing it. And we're starting to see a few cases pop up. Now, I'm not worried that we're going to see this huge polio pandemic mm -hmm. because the vaccination rates on polio are still very high. But to me, any case of polio that could have been avoided through a very safe and effective vaccine with 
tons of data behind it um, is a tragedy. And the people who aren't getting their kids vaccinated with polio, you, to a large degree, you can't have a reasonable conversation with them because any reasonable conversation, knowing how much this vaccine, how many lives it saved, what it used to be like, et cetera, you know, would lead you to believe that yes, because show me the data where it's problematic. Show me where it's not effective. Show me where it creates, because the data is not there. It doesn't exist. But still, some people are not getting vaccinated. And we're going to, we're going to see this in other areas if this continues. And, you know, it's, to me, it's interesting because I, I, the question I would ask for some of these parents that aren't having their children vaccinated from polio is you've had the vaccination yourself. Where did it ruin your life in a way that you think it's going Mm -hmm. to ruin your children's? And I, even among all of the weird conspiracy nonsense I've seen on the internet about COVID vaccines, I haven't seen any real response to a question like that. No, and I don't think, it, there, is, I don't think there is a good response to it, honestly. There isn't one. And that's why you can't have a logical, you know, rational conversation with them because they, they can't answer a simple question. Show me any sort of reasonable fact-based concern on the safety or efficacy of this vaccine. Well, it doesn't exist. So then we got to get into something else. We got to get into the weird conspiracy mm-hmm. stuff. I had a, a similar thought with, you know, when healthcare facilities started mandating the use of the vaccine for, for nurses or things that worked at hospitals, you know, and, and, and the people came out and said, you can't tell me what to put in my body. Well, mm-hmm. no, when you, when you took that job, you agreed that you were going to get the flu vaccine every year. And there were other things that you had to prove you were vaccinated for because you're in a healthcare delivery system. You did that and you've always done that. Why is this different? You know, why wasn't that an issue when you went to take that job at that hospital? And they said, oh, by the way, as a condition for your employment, which they all had, you have to bring me your childhood vaccination records to make Mm -hmm. sure you've been vaccinated from polio and all this other stuff. And you have to agree that every year you're going to get a flu vaccine. They went, oh, okay, that's cool. But suddenly there was something new and well, how dare you tell me to, no, no, you, you can't have that argument. You've already agreed to that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to agree to that, you don't have to work there. So it, same, same kind of a thing. And it's been, it's exactly what you said. It's been the norm for a long time to, to prove that yeah. you're vaccinated for a number of things. Uh, when I went to college, it was one of those things that, cause I moved to Michigan at the time that they had to, my pediatrician had to send a, uh, document from the state of North Carolina to my college verifying that I'd had all my childhood vaccines and I wasn't going to be spreading things like polio up in in Grand Rapids. Um, I know people that were protesting over the COVID-19 vaccination cards um, early on, and I'm sure some people still argue about that as well, but I have somewhere around here, I have a yellow fever vaccination card because I lived overseas Mm -hmm. and I needed to prove to these other countries that I had been vaccinated against yellow fever before they would let me enter the country. So to me, proving you're vaccinated just, it, yeah, it might be slightly inconvenient, but I'm not sure, you know, why it's, it's other than it's a quote unquote, you know, infringing upon my rights to be free. I, I'm not quite sure why, why all of a sudden we've become, other than what you've talked about with the, the extreme divisiveness we've seen and distrust of the government, um, it's become such an issue when it wasn't before. Well, and, and there's two other things that, that, I think about when, when in this kind of discussion on this stuff, one of them, you know, personally, I mean, my, my oldest son has autism. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed 16 years ago and, and there was a lot of angst out there about was autism caused by vaccinations, mercury, thimerosal, that, you know, right. and, and, you know, when, when your firstborn who's a month before his third birthday gets diagnosed with autism, you're, you're just inundated with information. Now, 
the question came up for my wife and I is, do we get him vaccinated? You know, he's at that age where he's starting to run into those regiments of childhood vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Now, what I did was I scheduled some time to talk to his pediatrician and said, I have some questions. How can you help me to feel comfortable that these vaccines aren't going to make, you know, didn't cause the autism? I've got another child who's a year and a half younger than him. How do you make sure I, mm -hmm. I feel comfortable that that wasn't, you know, and you know what, as a healthcare professional, he sat down and he talked to me as long as I want to talk. And he said, here's the data. And he explained to me there hasn't been thimerosal in vaccines for years. And he explained to me what it was like when he was training and there were, you know, there were kids in these polio wards, et cetera, and all that. And I said, oh, great, thanks for, you know, I got comfortable and, and we went forward. So that's the right way to approach it. The other thing that always cracks me up when people talk about the, you know, you can't ask me for a vaccine card and they compare it to Nazi Germany and show me your papers, which mm -hmm. I find utterly insulting in my intelligence. Okay, well, we're doing that because your failure to do something could negatively impact others, okay? You're not just sitting at home isolated. You're out and about, and if you aren't vaccinated, that could have a negative impact on others' health, and don't they have a right to be healthy? And I would often say, much like it's not a violation of your privacy if you're driving home one night and there's a checkpoint to stop you to blow a breathalyzer. Mm -hmm. Because if you're drunk behind the wheel of that car, you're potentially injuring others. No one ever says when they get that checkpoint, well, I don't even want to, you can't do that. That violates my personal rights. No, no, what it says is protecting everybody else's on the roads, their rights. And if you don't want to have a possible checkpoint with a breathalyzer, don't drive. So that's the other part on this whole vaccination card. Sure, it's inconvenient. I had to do it when I was in Europe, mm -hmm. but it's a minor inconvenience to protect everyone around me because I want to be protected from them, much like, you know, the couple times in my life that I've ever been at one of those points where they have a random checkpoint where I don't throw a fit. And I go, sure, officer. Right. You know, I'm, I'm not impaired and I'm, I'm happy to prove it because that's how I keep everybody else around me safe. And I want to make sure there's nobody else on the road that's mm -hmm. making me unsafe so anyways that's another another aside no that's okay i'm glad you brought those up especially the part uh, about your your son because i think that we've talked about it before when we talked about vaccination attitudes back in august that that is the best advice that i think anyone can give is to go talk to your doctor or talk to your child's pediatrician um because unlike what some of the conspiracies say, they're not in on the scam because there is no scam. <laughs> they're not seeing money coming in from the COVID vaccinations or the polio vaccinations. Um, so yeah, the other, the other yeah. interesting thing, and we had talked about this a little bit about the internet. I didn't really thought about this connection. The day that my son was diagnosed and the, the, the physician who diagnosed him is wonderful. She's a developmental pediatrician, just an incredible human being. One thing she did at the end of the, of the, the, the session was she said, now, when you go home, I want you to turn your computer off. Do not go on the internet. You're going to want to, but don't. And she said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three books that you can read because these have valuable information and it's truthful. And I'm going to give you one website because I know you're not going to believe me and you're going to turn your computer on. So only go to this website. And she said, because the qualifications to post something on the internet is you have access to it and a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And, and it was that whole thing, there's garbage out there. And so just don't do it. You know, she said, if you have questions tomorrow morning, give me a call, read these books, go on this one site, which I know is good information. Other than that, everything else on there, assume it's wrong, 
because it has no filter. And, and, and that's the other thing. And we talked about it in the beginning of the internet was supposed to make information so much better. And it's actually gotten to the point where, you know, you've got physicians saying, just don't even do it because 90% right. of it's garbage it, and, and, and you can't tell the difference. And yeah. the garbage has grown exponentially, yes. even within the yes. last just four years. I mean, yes. you have so many, cause you know, we don't have to, argue about whether what, what we feel about Facebook or Twitter. I, I use yeah. both of those, so I don't, mm -hmm. I really don't care. But I, some people will make the free speech argument that they're censoring people because of their opinions. Well, there's so many alternatives out there now for where you yeah. can put your opinion and no one will do anything about it. I, yep. you know, it's, the internet's a very interesting place. Uh, one thing yep. that is on the internet that I found related to polio that I think is quite interesting, and I want to make sure we share it, and I'll make sure it's in the show notes as well. Uh, it's a it's a opinion piece from Dr. Catherine Wu, PhD, uh, writing in the Atlantic uh, this past weekend, uh, and she talked uh, a lot about the global eradication of of polio and how the United mm -hmm. States it it is an admonition that we have, in a sense failed to do the one job that we had in the global uh, uh, the global priority to eliminate polio. And that's the, the countries that didn't have polio, their job was to keep their countries from getting polio. Um, right. And right now, because of there are a number of countries in the world where, where, where polio is endemic, including Pakistan and Afghanistan, hmm. because it's having a resurgence in, in the United States, because it, it could possibly have a resurgence in Europe and in Canada as well, it's going to be pushing back a lot of these deadlines for eradicating some of these diseases that we've taken for granted that were eradicated here in the United States mm -hmm. that are still very much alive in other parts of the world. Yeah, I'm just curious, Ron, about your opinion, um, about your analysis on the whole international movement to get rid of diseases, and in particular to, to polio, because it was mostly eliminated in the U.S., you know, mm -hmm. what does this say about our, our global priorities to keep the the world's population safe and healthy well it it doesn't say anything good you know it really is a sad testimony to you know um how bad some of our internal problems have gotten we are we are supposed to be that leader um as the richest country in the world the most advanced country in the world we are supposed to be that you know and i'm not i'm not trying to make a political step but that you know what reagan said about that shining light on that hill mm -hmm. um and we're failing at that um, because it was supposed to be this idea that let's eradicate it here. Let's eradicate it in the other developed nations and let's keep it out of these countries. And then we can eradicate it finally in the, in the third world countries. And, and that we knew that was going to be a long process. Um, but there was a plan to do it because then one of the nice parts about, you know, these kind of diseases and viruses, if we ever completely get rid of it, they can't come back, mm -hmm. you know, because it's not like they're naturally occurring. The virus has to be in a host and that there's one of two things that happens in that host. Either they kill the host or the host kills the virus. Well, if you get rid of it completely, there's, there's, you break the cycle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got so far with us and really with a lot of the other Europe and the other developed nations. And we were working on places like Africa and Pakistan and Afghanistan, the very difficult um, third world countries. And we've let our guard slip here. And so it could start all over again. And that's just a really sad testimony of, of our failure to be what, what I, I think we should be. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we'll make sure that we have all of these uh, articles and statistics linked in the show notes for this episode of the Flatlining Podcast. You can find it in the description or go go to this show's page at flatlining.net. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. And in the words of uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, I want to turn to something completely different now uh, and talk about the opioid crisis um, and the Supreme Court, interestingly enough. And this is a piece that was published in uh, Kaiser Health News and republished on CBS earlier this week, um, talking about a Supreme Court case, uh, Ruan versus the United States. It was issued, the, the opinion was issued in June. And in this particular case, it's changed the way that doctors who are accused of overprescribing opioids are handling their court cases. And in particular, it, it raises the bar for them to be found um, guilty, in a sense, of, of doing these things. Um, in part, the, the prosecutors not only have to prove that, the, um, that they were overprescribing the opioids but that they were, and that they weren't medically necessary, but that the intent of the doctor was not medically necessary, that he or she knew that doing this would be uh, detrimental to the patient. Before we get in, into any of this, these specific um, pleadings, Bron, what, what is your initial reaction to um, a Supreme Court case like this and, and how it's determined the way some of these um, medical criminal cases are being uh, determined? Yeah, I, I think personally, my own personal, I think mm-hmm. the Supreme Court decision is is problematic and disappointing, and here, here's why. Um, I think we have to be careful when we talk about physician malpractice, if you were, um, because, you know, there are a lot of cases where physicians have lost money in malpractice cases where they were doing everything that was within a reasonable standard of care that they thought they were right, et cetera. And it was a bad outcome. You can't always guarantee a good outcome. And mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful to, to immediately blame the physician because they're not perfect. And, um, you know, sometimes in spite of best efforts, um, there's bad outcomes. Um, so I, I get nervous about going too far down the road of always being able to blame the physician. However, mm-hmm. I think the concern I have with the ruling is this idea of intent. Now, if somebody clearly has the intent to harm patients, that is clearly a criminal act and I think could be charged with murder, okay, because there's intent Mm -hmm. is something that gets there. But I don't think intent personally needs to be there to show responsibility or culpability. I could argue that if I get behind the wheel of a car drunk and I kill somebody. I didn't intend to do that. I intended to get home safe. I didn't right. want to crack my car up. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I'm not guilty of doing something wrong. So this idea that there has to be intent really concerns me. This idea that I know one of the defendants in one of the cases said, well, in my point of view, well, that shouldn't be the bar because you're a physician right. and your point of view 
is not the, I think, the litmus test. Just like there were the physicians who are going, well, in my point of view, you know, uh, ivermectin is the only treatment for, well, no, no. Right. The data doesn't support that. And a lot of times a physician, we talk about community practice standards or community medical standard. Well, if you're the only one with that point of view and everybody else says, you know what? The overprescribing of an opioid is bad or prescribing an opioid without knowing the following things or without these controls. That's community standard. That's standard of practice. And you go outside of that just with the defense of, in my point of view, I was doing what was right and I had no intention. I'm sorry, those shouldn't be defenses because right. you can drive a truck through, in my point of view, or I didn't have intent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a problematic thing for the practice of medicine. And I don't know many physicians who support that idea. Right. Of that you just should have this blanket defense of saying, well, in my personal medical opinion, I thought I was doing the right thing and I had no intention to do harm. Mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what I want, I want to talk about a little bit about the speci some of these specific examples that were published in the Kaiser Health News piece. And we don't have to talk about that specific pay case because I don't know all the details. I don't know if you know all the details. So we can talk yeah. about them generally. Th this first one is Dr. Nelson Arano. Um, he was originally he originally pleaded guilty to overprescribing opioids. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened was he um, petitioned a judge and the judge agreed um, to change his plea to not guilty and have a trial because of the SCOTUS ruling in, in Ruan. Mm -hmm. um, other doctors have followed suit. A, a nurse practitioner in Tennessee delayed his trial because of the Ruan decision. Um, he's accused of trading opioids for sex and a reality TV show pilot. Wasn't aware that that was on the table for opioids, but apparently it is. Right. Uh, in Ohio, Dr. Martin Escobar cited Ruan to try and avoid prison time after he pleaded guilty to 54 counts of distributing a controlled substance. Uh, ultimately, the judge dismissed that and sentenced him to 25 years in, in prison. So we've seen a handful now of where some of these doctors, they've used it to their favor and some of these other doctors haven't. Do you have a sense of what the majority, which way the majority of these might go? Or is it kind of all up you know, in the I, air? I, I really think it's going to depend on the judge. I mm -hmm. think what the SCOTUS ruling did, in my opinion, was it, it created an opening for if a judge wants to lean that way to do it. Um, with this idea of, of you know, intent being a potential um, defense or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And... and and again, I get boy back to saying, in some ways, when a when a physician, and I would call these physicians at bare minimum negligent, mm -hmm. of not taking the appropriate precautions for who was getting the prescription, how many they were prescribing for what, and how they controlled it. Um, and I'll give you a personal experience in just a second, but you know, at bare minimum, they're negligent. Intent is irrelevant. You know, I, I, you know, whether it was intent to get rich or intent to harm or intent to get sex for drugs or, or just no intent at all and say, I, I was actually just kind of lazy and I didn't really control. I don't care what your intent was. You mm -hmm. were negligent in your job and that had a negative result, just like negligent in, you know, if I negligent in the decision making not to get behind the wheel of a, of a car drunk, you know, intent is irrelevant. So yeah, I think it's going to depend on, on the specific judges where you see, you know, the one, uh, the, the Escar case where he said, ah, pshaw, here's your 25 years. Uh, and other judges might say, well, you know what? Now that SCOTUS said that, I can't find you guilty. Um, and then it's going to be interesting what the appellant courts do, because I'm sure the Escar case is going to appeal it. 
Mm -hmm. And does the appellate court feel differently? You've created this opportunity for that, which I, uh, I think is problematic. Now, let me give you the back to that personal experience. I, you know, sure. I've had a, a couple of shoulder surgeries and a knee surgery. The orthopedic surgeon, um, excellent physician, uh, exhibiting the correct control of narcotic that was clearly medically necessary. It's post-surgical pain management said to me, I'm only prescribing you so many tablets. I'm not saying you can't have more. But before I'll up that prescription or renew that prescription, you're going to have to come in and talk to me about how you're handling your pain and why. Because I'm going to need to feel comfortable as your physician that mm -hmm. you truly are in post-surgical pain and need a few more pills. I'm not going to just blanketly renew that prescription because that's what I, that's appropriate. Right. You know, and, and I, I knew if I needed it and truly did need it, he would, you know, I could go in and see him and he would do it. But I wasn't just going to do the blanket because he needed to know that it wasn't just because I was becoming addicted to a post-surgical pain bed. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the, like I said, his intent was irrelevant. He was doing the appropriate control of a substance that can be um, addictive. Now, again, in the whole thing with, you know, with the opioid crisis, part of it started with a manufacturer who wasn't being completely forthright in their sales, mm -hmm. uh, you right. know, activities on the addictive nature of their drug, and they have been punished for it yes. to the tune of an awful lot of money. So, you know, I know that some of the doctors got caught up in this based on information, bad information they were given, then changed their, you know, their ways once they had the right information. I want to go back to this um, discussion about intent because I think that's a that's a good that's a good discussion here and. A couple months ago, either it was passed or it was just being debated in California, they were they were looking at adding um, some requirements to the state medical board for them to um, censure and reprimand physicians who spread COVID-19 misinformation. And you mentioned earlier ivermectin. Mm -hmm. Should, I mean, in, in that sense, you're sort of codifying that, at least with COVID-19, intent doesn't matter. You know, the, the science is done, mm -hmm. you know, by a majority and until something convinces a majority of people that it's you know it's wrong then that's stays as the mainstream that's how we all thought the earth was flat forever and then we had a majority of people realize no we can prove that it's not never mind so i'm i'm curious what your thoughts are on on some of these states kind of codifying that intent doesn't matter there there are set regulations there are set rules there are set standards as you talk about and intent doesn't matter yeah, and so I think it's particularly in professions where there's a, a there should be a, an expected level of of reliability on the information. You know, if if it's why you know lawyers can get sued for malpractice, it's why you know if your if your tax accountant does your taxes. You know, you you have this. He's a CPA. He's a tax accountant. You, a reasonable expectation that they're going to be giving you mm -hmm. good information. You know, it's why if your tax accountant goes, you know what? Don't worry about this. This ain't illegal. Just add an extra zero to every one of your charitable donations. It's no problem. And you get busted for that. You can go after his license mm -hmm. because you had a reasonable expectation that he's going to give you factual information. And I think the thing that California, some of their states were doing, the medical boards is saying, look. It's one thing to present the study and present the data about vaccines and say, this is what the data shows. Yes, this was only for this long and only over this many patients, but here's what the data shows. 
Um, it's even fine to say, I can't 100% guarantee you, because there are none of those, but I can tell you that the data shows that these, every bit of data says these are mm -hmm. effective, et cetera. Um, it's a different thing to completely go outside of the data, um, outside of the science, and say things that you have no supporting information for. Um, and it's, a, you know, people talk about, well, why did they, you know, you know, why did for hydroxy or hydrochlorozone or whatever it was called, I remember, mm -hmm. um, you know, why did at one point were they using it and then they pulled it? Well, because they, they at one point they weren't sure because there wasn't a study. And then when they got the study, they go, oh, my God, not only does it not help, it actually has a, an increased risk of a cardiac event. So we pull it. Mm -hmm. Well, once that information is out there, I think it is malpractice to, in the in the face of that data, go, I don't believe the science, and I don't have any science that tells me I should think otherwise that's generally accepted. And I'm just going to tell people, no, no, this is the right drug. Nope, sorry, I don't think you get to do that. And I don't think it's important whether you intended to harm them with that. It's, you know, that's not what you get to do. Do you remember a few months ago, we kind of had that uh, online spat with the pseudonymous uh, physician yeah. Paracelsus? You know, yeah. it, it, it makes me think about things like that. Cause it, I mean, and I, I haven't read his book. Uh, their publisher declined to send us a review copy. Um, but in his book and in his writings, he seemed to have this idea of that, well, I'm a patient's rights advocate. And I'm not really sure what that means other than my way is the right way of doing it. And everyone else who disagrees with me is wrong. So I'm now, I, I'm putting myself in the right by saying I'm actually for the patients and against, you know, the big boogeyman. Yeah. So I read the book. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it's a lot of, first of all, what he, my opinion, what he, he shows as data to try to prove his point is awful lot of connections that have to all be, you know, it's, it's, it's right. building a house of straw. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, well, you know, inference of, well, look at how much money is on drugs. These doctors have to be on the take. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I found a lot of flaws with some of his logic and the conclusions he was drawing. Um, so it, it's a, it is a problematic approach, and it's easy to hide behind, well, I'm just trying to do what's right for the patient. I'm that patient advocate. Um, you know, just like it's easy to hide behind, well, I'm just standing up for individuals' rights. Mm -hmm. Well, life isn't that easy, uh, and, and it isn't that clean cut. Um, and wouldn't it be better to stand up for, you, you can, well, the other thing, I think you can do both. You know, like, for example, and I'll go back to the story about, you know, when I got done with my questions with our pediatrician about immunizations, and he said, look, you know, I can't tie your kid down and put a needle in his arm, and I would never do that. You know, you as the parent have to make this decision. And I can disagree with that decision, but I'll respect the decision. All I can tell you is, if you choose not to have your child vaccinated, they can't stay in this practice. Because I, as a physician, can also make the decision on who I want to care for. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I'm, I know there are other pediatricians out there who aren't as strict about that, and I will give you their names. You know, so right. I thought that was a wonderful balance. He was being my advocate. And he was saying, I'm being the advocate of the small child. And I'm, but I'm respecting your right to make that decision. I don't get to make that decision for you. And I'll just say, you can make your decision. And then I have as a physician, a different decision I'll make. And there was mutual respect there. And so I don't think you, you know, you can't have both the saying, this is what's right. This is what the science says, but I respect that it's your decision. Mm -hmm. 
I, I want to turn quickly in the last few minutes that we have to something that's um, a little bit more optimistic, and that's kind of mm-hmm. what we've discussed. I don't know if we've discussed it on this program, but it has been discussed in, in, in the plethora of the, the Internet and the health news world, and, and that's the solution to the opioid crisis. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it, at least from what I'm reading, a lot of it boils down to there needs to be more money somewhere um, in, in recovery programs, in recovery clinics, it, possibly in education. What do you think is the greatest need right now um, for to, to solve the opioid crisis that we have in the U.S.? Well, and I'm thinking, by the way, of, of prescriptions, yeah. not necessarily yeah. drugs yeah. pouring in over the, over yeah. the border. Yeah, the prescription opioid crisis. So to me, there's, you know, there's there's three things, and and because of where we're at, you almost can't solve the problem without something addressing each of the three problems. One is we currently have an enormous population that's addicted and you got to deal with that. You know, that's the people who are, it's, it's, they've already have a problem. They're addicted to prescription pain medications and that's going to be treatment recovery. You know, what's the option of dealing with those individuals to help them kick their addiction. Okay. That's number one. Um, number two is you've got to try to keep, people from over prescribing these drugs, doctors, you know, again, we're not talking about the illegal, you know, drug trade, that's a whole different Mm -hmm. animal. But, you know, a lot of the opioid problem started out with a inappropriate legal prescription. You know, either there weren't enough controls on it, there wasn't enough explanation up front about, hey, you got to be careful with this stuff. Um, They were prescribed to the wrong people. And that to me is holding doctors responsible. That's why that the SCOTUS decision you know, is problematic to me is you took an oath, physician do no harm. You, you, you get paid to be responsible for these kind of things. And we're just asking you to do what you, you have agreed to do. And if you don't, there's gotta be repercussions, whether that's loss of license, curtailing of license, criminal activities, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's the second. And then the, the third thing is continuing to search for better, you know, either, systemic or post-surgical pain problems. Pain is an issue. I mean, we, we can't just say, well, here's a good way to solve a opioid problem. Ron, after your shoulder surgery, you're just going to get a leather strap and bike down hard. That ain't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking for other, you know, pharmacological things that aren't as addictive, looking for other non-medication driven ways to control pain. Um, some of that has to do with um, surgical technique. Um, you know, in, in uh, less invasive surgical, will have less post-op pain. That'll help. Um, you know, I know, remember when I had my shoulder done, one of the things we'd send you home is this thing that wraps around your shoulder that, you know, runs cold water over it to keep it cool. That helps and it doesn't replace mm-hmm. the, um, so you got to do all, you got to deal with the people who are addicted now. You got to punish the people who are inappropriately prescribing this stuff and then continue to look for better options that are not as addictive, um, or better techniques to deal with post-surgical or, or, you know, ongoing, you know, low back pain, that kind of stuff. Right now in Congress, the Non-Opioids Prevent Addiction in the Nation Act, or the No Pain Act, uh, has been introduced in both houses of Congress, and it's got some bipartisan support. And one of the things it does is it requires the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to separate Medicare reimbursement for opioid and non-opioid treatments. Do you think that's a good regulatory uh, at least step in the right direction? Well, I, I, I'm very nervous about 
it, it sounds good, but it, it can create, you know, it's like we talk about the internet creates these unwanted negative side effects. Sure. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, you don't want to create an environment where you um, deal with, try to deal with an opioid crisis by creating it less access to the opioids where needed. You know, we don't want to create an environment. I don't necessarily know that this will. It, it, I'm concerned because I, I need to see more of the details on how mm -hmm. it will work. Where you say, well, you know, uh, you know, you just had an ACL repair and I used to be able to give you this, but the reimbursement isn't there. So now I got to do something different. It's not going to be nearly as effective. Because, right. for example, if you don't deal well with post-op pain for ACL repair, then the patient's not going to do all their therapies to free that knee up. And what you could end up with is a lot of scar tissue that may need another surgery to break it up. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, we just made matters worse. Now you got another surgery to deal with. So I get worried about, well, we can fix it by changing the reimbursement that can happen, but it can also have incredibly negative side effects. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we will keep an eye on that and keep an eye on what sort of other uh, oversight, because there's some other oversight measures that they want to put in the bill as well that, mm -hmm. you know, HHS yeah. has to report how many, you know, opioid prescriptions were, were, were written in, in particular segments of the year. And um, so perhaps oversight's the answer and not necessarily changing the rules um, and, and leaving that to the physicians to determine exactly what would be the best right. outcome for that particular patient. Agreed. Yep. Well, uh, Ron, with that, we are just about out of time. And so we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us again on the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you for the discussion. read my Friday Pulse Check last week, you may be wondering about the TikTok trend that I mentioned, but didn't describe. The new process is called slugging, and in this health trend, you cover your face with a very thick coat of Vaseline in order to supposedly lock in moisture. Now, it's true that Vaseline can be very good on some parts of your skin, and it helps keep them from drying out. But dermatologists are warning that using too much Vaseline on your face, particularly with teenagers, could trap more bacteria along the skin and cause acne breakouts. As if that wasn't enough, the Food and Drug Administration is getting involved in another trend. This one encourages people to cook their chicken in NyQuil or other over-the-counter cold medication. First, this isn't appetizing or tasty, so why would you even want to do that? Second of all, the FDA's warning that boiling the medication can make it more concentrated or change the properties. The evaporating vaders could cause high levels of drugs to enter the person's body possibly cause long-term lung damage. I thought the internet was supposed to help fill the void that was, quote, the lack of information. But at least now someone's been on the record to state the obvious. Don't boil your chicken in NyQuil. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howard again, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.